0: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Krista Veridi. She is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and an award-winning researcher. Mostly on the efficacy of intermittent fasting for weight loss and metabolic diseases that are mostly seen in people with obesity. Her work is funded by the NIH, the American Heart Association, the International Life Sciences Institute, and the University of Illinois. She has published over 100 publications on this topic. And most recently, her research team investigated the effectiveness of alternative day fasting combined with exercise for the treatment of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. She has also investigated the effect of time-restricted feeding versus daily caloric restriction on the gut microbiome and risk for colorectal cancer. Dr. Verity received a BS in nutrition and dietetics at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Canada, her PhD in human nutrition at McGill University in Montreal, and she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of California at Berkeley. Welcome, Dr. Verity.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I received a press release about your research specifically looking at intermittent fasting, exercise, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I was really intrigued by this because it seems that Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is increasing in our society. The American Liver Foundation estimates that 100 million people in the United States have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is basically characterized by a buildup of fat around the liver in people who do not drink alcohol. So I was intrigued about your research as well as your general research on intermittent fasting. How did you become interested in intermittent fasting research?
1: So I started studying intermittent fasting almost 20 years ago. So before it got super popular as it's been in the past five years, because I noticed that people were really failing with calorie restriction diets. You know, people that just had to do daily tracking of calories and the food record or my fitness pal or whatever app. I just noticed that people quit those diets after a month or two. So at the time, my question was, do people really have to diet every day to lose weight? Or could they maybe do something like alternate day fasting where you do heavy restriction three days a week, five to 600 calorie intake, that's it. And then that gives you a break from dieting on four days a week. So that's kind of how I got into it.
0: And then with regard to your research subjects, did you find that the subjects were more likely to stick with specific kinds of intermittent fasting plans?
1: So we've never done a trial where we've compared different types of fasting interventions, but just kind of having run a bunch of alternate day fasting, which is, again, it's like 500 calorie one day, and then you have like a feast day the next day where you get to do whatever you want. We noticed that the adherence with that one Contrary to what I originally thought is actually not that great. We have a 40% dropout rate a lot of the time when we make people do these more intense fasting regimens. Whereas with time-restricted eating, where people eat within a six-hour window or an eight-hour window, people actually find those really easy to incorporate into their lifestyle. Particularly if they encapsulate the dinner time meal and place the window from like 12 to 8 or 11 to 7, we get really low dropout rates, maybe like 10%. And we've shown that people can continue those diets for up to a year and have really high adherence.
0: That's really wonderful. Just to find a kind of eating plan that has positive metabolic outcomes that's also sustainable is really key because, as most people know, diets really fail. They're very difficult to follow. People don't like keeping track. They don't like counting numbers. And who can
1: blame them? It's just not normal. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think, you know, I think time restricted eating, like the weight loss isn't, I have to say, it's not like amazing. Like it's nothing close to what you get with Ozempic or any of these meds or bariatric surgery, but it's on par with what you'd see with a typical calorie restriction diet or a low carb diet, that type of thing. You know, people lose five to 7% of their body weight after six months or so. So yeah, it definitely works. And then now there's longer term studies coming out like ours showing that people can stick to it. And you're right. That's the whole point. You can't start a diet. And then just once you reach your weight loss goal, if you stop it, you'll just gain all your weight back because you just go back to your old eating habits. So yeah, keeping it up is super important.
0: So you are the lead author on a paper titled Clinical Application of Intermittent Fasting for Weight Loss, Progress and Future Directions. And it's an excellent review article, and I will provide a link for our listeners. But you basically outline three different types of intermittent fasting. And you touched on this, but just to be clear, you've got alternative day fasting, something called the 5-2 diet, and then time-restricted eating. Can we just clarify those three approaches?
1: Yeah. So intermittent fasting is actually like an umbrella term for those three diets. Time-restricted eating, which I've talked about, is when you just eat within a certain window of time each day. Usually it lasts from any like a short window is about four hours to a longer window is 10 hours. Then there's alternate day fasting, which involves fasting basically every other day. So there's a fast day where you consume about five or 600 calories as usually a single meal somewhere in the day. And then you take the next day off, which is called the free eating day or feast day. And then that diet just flip-flops like that, like feast day, fast day, feast day, fast day indefinitely. And then there's one in the UK that's called the 5-2 diet, which is kind of like a spinoff of alternate day fasting where people just do two of those fast days per week, like a Monday and a Wednesday where they just eat 500 calories and then they get five days of free eating. And that's why it's called 5-2
0: so, just from your awareness of your own research, as well as that of others, of those three approaches to intermittent fasting, I think what I heard you say is that the time restricted eating seems to be the most sustainable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Time restricted eating, people like it the best just because it's, you know, they don't have to count calories, which is great. Just by limiting the eating window, they just naturally reduce calorie intake. Whereas alternate day fasting, we have pretty high dropout rates just because people don't like eating so little every other day. And then it also involves calorie tracking, which is not something that people like to do. And it also
0: interferes with the regular rhythm of a family's eating plan. And I wonder too, if people don't get in the mindset of with any kind of restrictive eating plan where they're restricted and then perhaps they go a little bit more overboard on the feast day. Have you seen that?
1: So that's actually one of the very first things we measured because we do most of our studies in people with obesity that may be eating A little too much anyway. So I just assume that, yeah, if we had people only eat 500 calories one day, that they would maybe eat double the next day. But we've done at least a dozen clinical trials and alternate day fasting with over, probably over a thousand people. And people actually only eat about 10% more on the feast day. So you'd expect it to be different, but I'm not sure what's going on. People are just coming more in touch with their hunger and fullness cues, I guess, but they definitely don't binge on that day, which we found really interesting. Yeah. Do you have to say we do exclude people with binge eating disorder? At first we didn't, and we did see that some of those individuals did binge on the feast day, but not anymore now that we've excluded them.
0: Now with regard to metabolic markers to see if indeed these diets or these eating plans are effective in reducing risk factors, I'm assuming you did a body fat measure?
1: Yeah, so we measure body weight, and then we look at body composition in all our trials: fat mass, visceral fat, belly fat, and then muscle mass as well. And then we we measure glucose regulation, and cholesterol levels, and blood pressure.
0: And do you see a marked benefit from any one of those intermittent fasting
1: plans? Ah, uh, yeah, they definitely all help people lose weight. That's the one thing I can say with certainty, having run so many of these trials. People lose anywhere from about five to 7% of weight with most of these different types of intermittent fasting after about six months. And then if they continue some type of modified version of them, like if they do alternate day fasting, maybe just once or twice a week, they can maintain that weight. And then with time-restricted eating, if they move from an eight-hour window to a 10-hour window, they can also maintain the weight by just, but they'll have to stick to some form of the fasting.
0: I want to talk about the time restricted eating specifically because I think it's probably the most comfortable for people to follow. I want to ask about the role of timing, like when that window is most effective. You know, is it better to shift your eating towards the earlier time of the day versus the later time? Why might that make a difference?
1: So yeah, there's been a lot of controversy or a lot of studies now, like early versus late time restricted eating. And what we know is that the body is a lot more insulin sensitive in the morning, which means our bodies can just deal with food and sugar from our diets pretty easily. They can like put it away really easily in the morning. And then our body's ability to deal with sugar gets worse throughout the day. So in general, eating earlier or consuming the vast amount of your calories before about 2 p.m. or so is considered healthier just because, yeah, and our energy expenditure is a little higher in the morning too. So it all kind of works together. The problem though, is that whenever people have designed these time-restricted eating studies where people have to stop eating by let's say 3 p.m., I just don't think it's sustainable. You know, these are like short clinical trials where people are getting paid and, You know, they don't see very high dropout rates there, but just having done so many different dietary interventions, nobody's going to want to skip dinner with their families every night. In the studies of where we design like our initial alternate day fasting studies, We had people consume the 500 calories as a lunch and people hated it. They they were saying that like a lot of the times the people in the studies were the ones making the dinners for their families. So, you know, they couldn't eat that night and they would just make the meal and then just sit there and watch their family while they ate. So it was kind of miserable for them. So I think to summarize, I'd say it's healthier to eat earlier in the day, but I don't think it's very feasible. I think just doing time-restricted eating whenever that works for you will result in natural calorie restriction. So if you eat in an eight-hour window, we've shown that that just naturally reduces energy intake by about three to 400 calories per day without calorie counting. So that in itself will have a lot of metabolic benefits too, just the sheer amount of like weight loss. I'd say just do what works for you, something that you can do long-term.
0: Right. Now, if we are more insulin sensitive towards the morning, would it make sense to shift our macronutrient intake accordingly? For example, would it make more sense to have a higher carbohydrate intake towards the earlier part of the day and then maybe in the evening
1: have less carbohydrate? Yeah, that actually does make a lot of sense. I'm not sure if there's been studies that specifically looked at that with time restricted eating. I haven't seen that, but that that's a really that's a smart idea. Might be a good study to run.
0: Well, I say that only because I had some friends who were in the medical field who had their glucose monitored and they would sit down in the evening and they'd watch a movie and have popcorn and they told me that their blood glucose just shot up surprisingly high. And I thought Well, what if they had that popcorn earlier in the day and then had maybe some carrot sticks or something along with their movie if they had to eat, but not the high carbohydrate intake that you might experience, say, if you're sitting down with popcorn watching a movie?
1: That is true. Well, definitely, like the thing that we try to tell people even with an eight hour window is just try to not snack after dinner too (laughs) So sadly if you're watching a movie, maybe just have like flavored bubbly water. But um I know that's hard. Well, you're a dietitian, so you know how hard it is to get to. It's people. very hard
0: let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are speaking today with Dr. Krista Verity. She is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's an award-winning researcher and her area of research specifically is on intermittent fasting for weight loss and metabolic disease. And she has also looked at the role of intermittent fasting and exercise on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So Dr. Verity, let's jump into your research on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I'm interested in that because not only does it apply the intermittent fasting, but you layer on top of that exercise. And I wondered whether the exercise mattered at the time of day that it was performed and what kind of exercise was involved. So was it resistance training or weightlifting, or was it more aerobic, biking, walking, etc.?
1: Yeah. So we combined alternate day fasting where it's 500 calories every other day with endurance or aerobic exercise five times a week for an hour. So, and it was all supervised so we could make sure that people are actually doing it. So they were using like elliptical machines and stationary bikes and treadmills and that type of thing.
0: So one hour per day, five days a week. So five hours total. Yeah, that's right. So quite a bit. Probably quite a bit more than they were used to. Was that sustainable?
1: So it was a three-month trial and there was really high adherence. So it was during COVID actually. So at first we started the study and we had it in our research center and we had people come to us for exercise. But then because it was COVID, people were attending four out of five or so of the exercise sessions over Zoom. So we'd like watch them do it in their own home with like an aerobic video or with their own exercise equipment. But we did not measure whether or not they stuck to it after the three-month study. But I do have to say that they were very compliant with it. But, you know, it could also be COVID because people were kind of bored and wanting to maybe get some exercise anyway. So I'm not sure how that influenced it.
0: Well, I think having a diagnosis of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease would be highly motivational because it is a serious condition, just sure. as prediabetes and diabetes is something that seems to be increasing in our society probably related to our highly processed diet and low exercise, but it is something that can lead to serious consequences. So I think that your research is extremely timely. It's not just weight loss. It's really important improvements in metabolic health. What were your key takeaways from your research? Did you come away with any
1: ahas well, I I was impressed that people could do it, first of all. So we basically had a group of people doing the... Fasting plus the exercise, and then a separate group just doing exercise, then another one just doing the fasting, and then a control group. And I'd say an aha moment was wow, people actually, like you're right, they, I think they just took their diagnosis really seriously. And a lot of them had never really exercised before. So the adherence I was really impressed by and the motivation to lower the amount of fat in their liver. Cause at this point, fatty liver is associated with obesity. So as people have, particularly a BMI over 30, you're pretty high risk for having fatty liver. Right now, it's like 30% of our population has fatty liver disease, and a lot of those are undiagnosed. But we saw that with this diet exercise intervention that we were able to lower the amount of fat in the liver by about 6%. So that that was pretty impressive. And then basically what fatty liver disease is is when more than 5% of your liver by weight is fat. So you want to lower that below the 5% threshold. And I think they started out in the study around 13% and we lowered it by 5 or 6%. So we didn't clear the fatty liver disease, but it was definitely on its way there. Like I think if we had run the study for six months instead of three months, we probably would have seen almost a full remission of, of the fatty liver. So I thought that was cool. We also saw um, reductions in body weight and waist circumference, and we did see insulin sensitivity improve as well and then fasting insulin went down. So fatty liver disease puts people at really high risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So we're seeing a bunch of improvements in their blood sugar control as well. So yeah, a lot of cool things I think we saw from this study. Absolutely.
0: I need to ask about the differences in men and women. Were these approaches equally effective in both sexes?
1: So we didn't do like a a sub analysis where we analyze the women and men separately, because almost all of our studies are about 80% women, 80 to 85%. And you just run into statistical problems when you're only analyzing like a really small sample of men. It's just hard to find statistical significance. So sadly, I can't answer that question if it, it differed, but the adherence rates were the same. We noticed that between men and women.
0: Does macronutrient intake matter? I've seen research that points to high sugar diets worsening the condition. Did you pay any attention at all to protein, fat, carbohydrate distribution?
1: We didn't. We would check in with them weekly over Zoom and provide some really basic dietary counseling for the people that were doing the alternate day fasting diet. But we didn't concentrate on meal timing, distribution of sugars or anything like that. Or we we basically were just trying to get them to eat more fruits and vegetables and lower their processed food intake. And then we also measured diet quality using food records over the course of the study and found that it was a pretty typical American diet where they're eating, I think like 35% fat, 40 to 50% carbs, and then the rest was protein. And that didn't change over the course of the trial, but even though their macros didn't change at all and their diet quality didn't change because of the weight loss, we still saw some nice improvements in insulin sensitivity and reductions in liver fat.
0: And that's really heartening news to show that I want to use the word simple. They're not so simple, but these simple tweaks or non-medically invasive, not expensive with regard to drug use, that we can see such a dramatic change just by shifting the timing of our eating and having that window matter. And then also just by incorporating some exercise. And I would guess that even if they weren't doing an hour a day, even if it was 30 to 45 minutes would make a difference.
1: Oh, for sure. I think so.
0: All right. Let's talk about something else with regard to intermittent fasting. I want to jump back to that particular way of eating because you've got in this review paper, some points that I think are very important. And that is who shouldn't participate in one of these intermittent fasting models?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. That is an important thing. So I'd say definitely not children under 12. There's not a lot of, well, one, that's a high period of growth. So we wouldn't want anyone doing severe energy restriction then. However, there is new studies of time-restricted eating in teens that show that it might actually be safe for teens that are severely overweight and it may help lower diabetes risk. And we don't recommend it for women who are pregnant or lactating at this point, just because there's no safety data there. And then also people with a history of eating disorders, it's not great for them, particularly binge eating doesn't work. For instance, with alternate day fasting, we always exclude people with any type of eating disorder from our trial. Definitely not people that are already quite underweight, like below a BMI of 18.5. And then at this point, there's not a lot of data in older people, people over 65 or 70 years old. And we don't really know how fasting affects muscle mass in that age group. We know that once somebody hits 65, their muscle mass just naturally starts to go down due to aging. But we're scared to exacerbate that with fasting. So I would caution against that until we have more studies.
0: Would it be safe, though, to recommend the eating window style of intermittent fasting with an older population?
1: It might. Yeah. Again, there's like no safety data. So I'd hesitate to say it's definitely okay, but we actually ran a clinical trial in people with type two diabetes and we're trying to target people that had type two diabetes for a while. So we actually went up to 80 years old. I think we only had like one person that was over 70, but it was, you know, in a very small sample (laughs) that was safe for them. So I think, I think we just need more clinical trials before we can say that with certainty if it's safe in older people.
0: Well, in preparing for this interview, I listened to another interview that you did, and you happened to mention something that I thought was quite interesting. And it had to do with the effect of these intermittent fasting regimes on PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. Tell me how that works.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, we're actually running a study right now in women with PCOS. So PCOS is basically something that happens It affects 10% of premenopausal women. So a lot of women, younger women have this. And it's when they're making too many male sex hormones. So they're just making their hormones are out of whack, and they're making too much testosterone, basically, and then that can lead to issues with menstrual regularity, it can also lead to acne and facial hair and body hair. So what we noticed in some initial studies was that fasting doesn't really have much effect on reproductive hormones. I think people are really worried about that or they're worried that it has a negative effect. So we've never seen any negative effects. The only thing we noticed in previous studies is that it helps decrease testosterone levels in women. So women do make a little bit of testosterone, but you just don't want it to be too high. So from that, we designed this study in PCOS because we want to see if the weight loss from fasting can help people get their reproductive hormone levels back. So lower testosterone and slightly higher estrogen just to get their menstrual cycles back to being regular.
0: Has your research affected the way you eat?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> it has for sure. I'd say before starting this I probably just assumed low carb diets and calorie restriction diets were the only things out there but now I definitely follow an 8 hour window. So I do try to follow not eating after dinner every night. You know, it's different of course on the weekends if I go out with friends or something. Then I I have like the cheat days and that type of thing, but I really do try to eat between 11 and 7. That's the window that works best for me. I'm not a very early riser. So, for me, eating some type of breakfast or coffee and and something around 11 works for me. And then eating dinner around six or so with my family.
0: I agree. Ever since I started learning about intermittent fasting and especially the time restricted eating window, I too have put much more emphasis on myself with regard to, okay, after dinner, that's not the time that we want to be consuming calories. So I think it's so fascinating to hear about how our own research leads us to tweak our own diets. We've just got a couple of minutes left and I want to give the floor to you. Is there anything you want our listeners to know?
1: Yeah. I I guess the only thing that we didn't really talk about was intermittent fasting is pretty safe. I think people are worried about it causing eating disorders and and that type of thing. And and there hasn't been any evidence of that, or people are worried again about reproductive hormone changes. That's been a big topic. And I think some of those worries came from animal studies done in baby rats. And that, you know, basically do not reflect at all what's going on in adult men and women. So just to say in general, the diets are pretty safe. They don't result in eating disorders or hormone fluctuations, or even like changes in metabolism. I think people are really worried about fasting messing up their metabolism. But basically when someone loses weight, your metabolism is just how many calories you need per day. And that's dependent on how big your body is. So bigger people need more calories and smaller people need less calories. So with every weight loss regimen, you're going to go, it's going to go down a little bit, but fasting does not disrupt your metabolic rate any more or any differently than calorie restriction or anything else. So, so yeah, I just want to point out some safety concerns there.
0: And I want to emphasize something that you said in another interview, and that was that we really need to lose about 5% of our body weight to see clinical benefits. I think that so often our media environment promotes extremes. So extreme thinness, extreme muscle building. And it really is very difficult for someone who is obese to ever reach a 100-pound or a 125-pound size, but to know that it really doesn't take that much loss to see that significant metabolic benefit.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Just 5% of body weight can help lower cholesterol levels, blood pressure, improve blood sugar control.
0: Right. Great. Okay. We've got to wrap up, but in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Krista Faraday. She is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She's an award-winning researcher, and I will provide a link to a comprehensive review article titled Clinical Application of Intermittent Fasting for Weight Loss. Progress and future directions. Thank you so much for your research and your time today, Dr. Verity. Also, you're available on Instagram, and I'll provide a link to that as well.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me.